Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Ever notice that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, even ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the entrepreneur-owner managers moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, their positive legacy assured, and their independence powered by the fortune they've just realized, while others, well, others' outcomes can look more like a train wreck. Is it merely luck, or is it more than luck? At Bigelow, we think it's more than luck. We can learn from the experiences of our peers. So in this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains. We look for patterns of connectedness across those domains and we publish these candid, one-on-one, unedited interviews with some of the most high-performing entrepreneurs from both the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors to learn from their experiences. So. As a private business owner, let me ask you, what's your best way of learning? Do you have to make every mistake or failure on your own as if you were the first one to ever encounter that challenge? Or can you learn from the experiences of others? Because if you can, that is a superpower which exponentially multiplies your learning, your achievement, and your positive legacy. Here, we hear the real life stories of other entrepreneurs which helps us to look in the mirror and see a little of ourselves in there. Let's listen and learn. Who do you know who has spent nearly 50 years of his life as an entrepreneur, an advisor to other entrepreneurs, and co-investor with them? One of the most well-known personalities in the private market across the country happens to be one of my closest friends and mentor for the past 50 years. Entrepreneur-owner managers and their expert advisors know the name Richard C. Kimball, who began his career with Bigelow in 1972. Exuberant private investor, ready for a melee about business strategy anytime at all. You know, I should have known the night before my Bigelow start date on July 1, 1980. Dick Kimball called me and said, hey, Pete, we've got a lot to do tomorrow. So can you meet me in our offices at 5 a.m.? My answer was, of course, see you then. And I knew at that exact moment just what the future held. A zestful melee every day. I had the great fun of catching up with Dick on a busy weekday from his home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we had an hour-long, very personal one-to-one conversation that you'll now have the chance to listen to also. This podcast was recorded live on June 10th, 2020, using a cloud-based tool called Squadcast. As always, these Positive Enterprise Value podcasts are unscripted and unedited. Here's Dick. One of the things I was thinking about, Richard, thinking about here we are, it's uh, in two weeks, it's going to be 40 years since you and I first began working together. And um, it, it's like an extraordinary time, those 40 years in the history of our country or really in the history of the world, right? I mean, you, uh, 
you were already working at with Bigelow and you, if we think about 1980, um, you can chime in here, but I, I was thinking to myself, you know, um, we had just come through the challenging 60s and the horrible 70s and all that that meant. I think Ronald Reagan had been elected president and was inaugurated in January 1980. And that's when, if you remember, the hostages that were taken, taken uh, in the U.S. Embassy in Iran were released. They had been held for over a year. Um, it had been a period of stagflation. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 650. The uh, prime rate at some point in 1980 hit 18.5%. And yet during that time, I just want to ask you, what inspired you to want to create a, an M&A practice that went to private companies? Because in a sense, that's sort of where our discussion with my career started. Yeah, this, this is a good question. I think, first of all, um, my prior job in Washington was dealing with uh, private equity, uh, not private equity, uh, corporate buyouts. And I noticed how clumsy they were. And I, I sort of wondered what's going on into the private sector. Now, my family is involved in lots of different businesses. So I was certainly not unaware. Most of them didn't have an exit. You just either pass it on to the next generation or you folded it up and put a sign in the window and said to close for retirement. And when I got to Bigelow, all of Nat's clients were privately held companies. So when Nat took me around by the hand to meet a lot of these companies, small as they were, that was the single question that they would ask is, how do I get out? It was easy to get in. It provided a good life for us. It paid for good tuition for my kids to go to college. Now they've got more choices than I had to stay with the business. They want to do something else. How do I get out? And in a real sense, there was no exit. You either did bank financing at some cheap number or you just hung in and liquidated. And I, I was just sort of fascinated with why there wasn't a different alternative such as large-scale buyouts. And then, as you recall, during uh, the, the 70s and certainly in the 80s, the explosion of the LBO marketplace, which encouraged banks to go in and do crazy financings. Everybody jumped into the boat and said, hey, there's an opportunity there. And that was great. And it worked for a while, but mostly with the big companies. And so the small companies were still left behind, the privately held companies. So uh, I think we maybe weren't fully aware, but we knew there was an opportunity there. And we sort of treaded down that path to try to find ways to help private family businesses get liquid, get some so, liquid for the business. So probably, you know, a lot of the listeners to private enterprise value, positive enterprise value are entrepreneurs. And a lot of them are um, people who want to be entrepreneurs. And there are some uh, uh, expert advisors to entrepreneurs may not remember that. I think it's accurate, Rich, to say in 1980, there really were no private equity firms in the US. I mean, I guess there was AEA investors, which would have first formed and, you know, soon after 1980, maybe in 83, 84, 85, people like Forsman Little and KKR began to do the really big multi-billion dollar deals. Yeah. But I'm just contrasting that with today where we have, you know, several thousand private equity firms in North America who, according to a Goldman Sachs report last week, have raised more than, get this, 
2.5 trillion of equity that is as yet uninvested on a leveraged basis. I mean, we're, we're in a very different time where really the alternatives for even the most successful business owners were really limited, weren't they? Yeah, they were, they were extremely limited. The, the banks would look at a, a, a leveraged buyout and basically do a valuation based upon the, uh, the land building plant property and equipment. And that was generally uh, a pretty low value for the business. So there were no, there really were no alternatives. So back to the point of history, Greylock, if you remember Greylock was probably the first company in the United States, uh, 1965, it was founded. You, you probably remember Bill Elfers who started the business and they raised $6 million. <laughs> from six wealthy families in Boston, and they started their way to do buyouts. And they really were the first in the marketplace. And then others jumped on board and you know the rest of that story. So yeah, uh, a, a, out of a field of one, but there are, now there are of course, many, 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 many alternatives for people to buy out. And uh, I think that's the new mood. I do think we saw it early Maybe we saw the problem. We didn't so much see the solution, but we saw the problem. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that I remember in those days, um, I, don't, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Elliot with one L, a guy who had a wood products business in Cambridge. And I remember you and I meeting with him in, probably in 1980, and he wanted to think about what to do with the business. And we were there to say to him, that there are no strategic buyers for the business. Hmm. I remember him saying to me, uh, you mean that my business is not worth anything? I said, no, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, there are no strategic buyers for the business. And he said in his Boston accent, PETA, I have made a profit every year in this business since 1946. You're telling me this business isn't worth anything. And I said, no, I'm not. There just are no buyers. So his alternative at the time was as you pointed out, maybe to make a sweetheart deal with his management team, maybe he could do a kind of an employee buyout. Uh, and I think what really happened was he probably over time liquidated his inventory and receivables because there was nobody who would give him the appreciation enterprise value, a term that really wasn't used then. Yeah, that was a term that was didn't use then. But I, I think that in so many ways, these companies were caught with really good businesses, good cash flow, but they were getting older and they needed to get some liquidity and it wasn't available. So that was the that was the nature of the opportunity. So what, what was it about the M&A business when I joined in July, 1980, we, you and we had put together Mergers and Acquisitions Inc. We, we, we wanted to have a, a part of the business that focused exclusively on candidly, a part of the business that Begelow exclusively focuses on today. What was it at about the time that gave you the inspiration and the energy to do that? Because the consulting business was going along just fine, and this was a uh, step in a new direction, which wasn't completely uh, unanimous, if I recall. <laughs> wasn't unanimous at all. <laughs> Couldn't even get the, uh, the budget for the brochure passed through the partnership. But we did it anyhow. <laughs> uh, Pete, again, it comes back again. We sensed the opportunity. We figured that we sensed the opportunity, but we wondered if the marketplace did. 
namely our potential clients. Did they realize that there was an opportunity? So we put this little brochure together. You were the inspiration for that because someone was going to have to take that concept and execute on it. It wasn't going to happen on its own. And I remember very well, we started sending out brochures like it was the uh, publisher's clearinghouse. And several people called back and said, wow, this is really great. You really guys can really do something. Well, of course, there was a little bit of fantasy in the brochure because it, it made it as if we already were doing it. And I remember Dave Williams saying to you, Pete, I got this really nice brochure um, and it sits on my desk and I really want to throw it away, but it looks too good. And I think I better call you if you remember that conversation. And that really I did know. start execution phase 101 to get a private company to think about either a, an acquisition or a divestiture, which was all. We were just trying to raise the state of awareness that there was an opportunity beyond business as usual. So yeah, I, I remember that well. And I would say to, again, to the Positive Enterprise Value listeners, uh, really, uh, Richard built this business from scratch, scratch, scratch. I mean, what we're talking about here is that we did a direct mail to, I don't know how many, you know, probably a thousand people in New England. And there were some responses. And some of it was really, gee, I have this um, elastomer seal business, S-E-A-L, seal business, that I'd like to grow into the more exotic areas. How can you help me do that? And so I recall we actually went to the Harvard Business School Library and bought a, uh, a subscription to being able to go <laughs> to the library because there was no internet. There was no online research. And the best we could do would be to go to a library. And we got the rubber red book from a, from a client and friend. And we went out to begin to canvas opportunities, which are mostly in uh, Southern California, because that's where the aerospace business was that used this kind of elastomer. And so it was really uh, trying to build the business, which we had to do from the ground up, because candidly, we probably were ahead of the tools. The tools weren't quite there yet. Maybe a year or two later, IBM announced the PC, and we had a, a early IBM PC. And I remember using the spreadsheet VisiCalc, and you and I sitting down at probably 10 o'clock on, on a Tuesday night with a beer in front of us, realizing, oh, if we take these rows and if we take these columns, we can we can add these into a sum. This is magic. We don't have an HP12C calculator. You remember those days? I remember that uh, very well. I remember VisiCalc and all the things in between. Um, I, I think in terms of being early, early is sometimes good, sometimes it's not. But yeah. our, our so-called competitors, there were a half a dozen firms in Boston, and they were still in the generalized corporate finance field. You know, they really weren't doing M&A. They were doing mostly capital raising. That was sort of the thing. And um, M&A hadn't either came upon them or otherwise, unless it was a public company. And public companies still were acquiring because they had access to the information. They know who was public. They could go to the uh, they could go to the 10Ks. They go to the filings. But the the availability of information on the private company was non-existent. And uh, that one was of the things. I, one of the things I think of back in those days, Rich, was how helpful uh, experienced senior commercial bankers were to our clients. That if you had a com frequently the senior commercial bankers were people with uh, a great credit background and maybe uh, a nose for deals 
and maybe also an empathy or an ability to uh, deal uh, successfully with entrepreneurs. And there's so many times, I think, when they were often one of the first conversations that an entrepreneur would have about these topics, about whether I should be growing through acquisition or whether I should be thinking about, you know, what, what's going to happen to my business. And sometimes, too, they were the ones who were the first warning bell to say, hey, the balance sheet is getting a little out of control here. There's some things you got to consider doing. And I feel like to some degree, those super close banking relationships that existed then and were so valuable to our clients don't exist as much anymore. What, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, there, there really was um, a level of intimacy between the loan officer and the company. First of all, uh, a lot of the banks were, I wouldn't say privately held, but they certainly were regional banks, ones that we knew they dealt in a particular geography. This sort of thing didn't exist with the Bank of America or any of the other large-scale banks, State Street Bank at that time, and New England merchants. But the uh, the smaller regional banks had a very, very strong relationship with their clients. They went to their bar mitzvahs. They went to the funerals. They really did know it. So um, it was more than just a look at the balance sheet. And when the owner signaled that they wanted to get grow, or they wanted to uh, bring people in. The cheapest source of information they would go to is their banker who didn't charge them anything. They didn't go to their lawyer. The lawyer would send them a bill. They wouldn't go to their accountant because their accountant didn't understand the business. But the banker knew it and it was a good source of information. So uh, I, I think that has sort of been lost today. Everything's a number and um, advice is hard to get. And some of the loan officers haven't been there long enough to know. So I think about, do you remember how long were you and with, with uh, Phil Ryan and Bigelow before 1980? Was it mid-70s? Yeah, I came on in, 70, in 72. And, so, uh, that's we, 48 years. Yeah, we, we, we rattled around and basically we're – corporate finance generalist. Basically, we'd do anything for a fee. <laughs> and, and there were plenty of needs that needed to be filled. Many of them were refinancings. Uh, one of the projects Phil did, we were a little bit down on our luck, and someone said to him, hey, you know, I'm opening, opening a new factory. Does anybody know where I can get a good land surveyor? And Ryan said, I went to WPI. I've got a degree in civil engineering. I'll do your land surveying for you. So, oh, my goodness. So when it comes to generalized corporate land services, it includes land surveying. So, But we got lucky a couple of times because we hit some good clients. Uh, the banks were very good to us. We didn't owe any money. Uh, but we were very much into the generalist category. You can't do work for clients who don't know what they need to do. So it really wasn't until you came along, you know, several years later that we fiddle around with chapter 11s, we fiddle around with refinancings and the refinancings paid the bills quite nicely over those years. So Not really, uh, in some ways, what you're describing, I think is what a lot of entrepreneurs would recognize that in the early years, you are full service. You do everything. The firm does everything, but also you as an owner within the firm 
does whatever it takes within the firm because you're, you need revenue and you need that blood flow of cash flow to, to keep the firm alive. And then as we got more mature, we became a little more focused and then we became more and more focused and we stopped. Actually, we discarded some activities that were, even though they brought revenue and they could be arguably profitable, they detracted from our focus. And then today we're at a point where, of course, we deal exclusively with entrepreneur owner managers and we deal exclusively with really how they can have their businesses sustainably survive. Did you think when back when you were a kid that you were going to, you know, spend 50 years of your life as this kind of an entrepreneur? Uh, yes. You, you always thought you'd be an entrepreneur? I was always fascinated with business. Uh, I knew I was too hyper to work for anybody in the normal uh, sense of things. I liked the magic of what entrepreneurs did. And I, I was sort of a curious, curious kid. I did an internship with a packaging company, a young startup packaging company. I was at Babson. And I spent most of my time asking the, uh, the entrepreneur, how did you do it? What did you do? What did it take? So there was a curiosity. And that, do you think about that as your first real job? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Were you a good employee? Oh, I was unbelievable. Yeah, I, I was really, really good. And the company got sold to uh, <laughs> to Kraft Food. So I, I had the fun, even in a relatively short intern time, to see the company go from uh, a, a, really a startup, a, a bombs away startup, uh, to being acquired by, uh, by Kraft uh, for the wrong reason. <laughs> Nonetheless, so if if I had the owner of that business that you worked for on the line, and I asked them about you, and I asked them, was uh, Dick Kimball a good employee? What did did he say? He would say, "Fantastic guy! This guy saved me so much money. I can't believe it." Oh, that's great! Great. So, so did that give you confidence to be able to think, "Oh, maybe I'll do this on my own"? I, I think I knew that my level of curiosity whether it was intellectual or not, but just plain level of curiosity was different than most. And uh, um, we weren't trying to invent anything. This was not a cure for the common cold. But it's one that I, I obviously sense that if my curiosity was such that we could find things that others weren't looking at or looking for, we could unlock opportunities that weren't normally there. I thought that was going to be the case. So over the years uh, with uh, Bigelow, you spent time as a an advisor uh, to uh, entrepreneurs, uh, as a uh, coach to some of them, as a coach to some of us at Bigelow, mentor to, to me and to others at Bigelow. Uh, you also sometimes invested with those entrepreneurs in their businesses. You also... Uh, had a temporary leave of absence where you became uh, a uh, officer and a manager, a leader of that business. You've also had many, many stints as a member of the board of directors of organizations, both for-profit and not-for-profit. Help me understand what the arc of that is. Do you feel like some of that was, was that intentional? Or did like one experience lead you to the next one, lead you to the next one? Well, you know this as well as I, uh, as an advisor, 
it's easy to give information. <laughs> it's hard to accept information. So I, I think with my, my stint outside of Bigelow, part of the frustration was that we had a private family business, which I was a director, extremely frustrated that they didn't take any of our advice. And we saw that they had a golden opportunity to do something and they never did it. So sort of what led it is that if you're so smart, why don't you come and execute? Because execution is hard. Giving advice is easy. But putting your money where your mouth is, is where the, uh, is the, where the value is created. So, you know, we took that little company uh, and we reorganized it. We got new financing. We did an IPO. Uh, we made about 25 acquisitions, uh, and then we bought back the stock. I mean, it was sort of all high on execution, not high intellectually, but just do it. Just do it. And because there's no benefit from thinking about it or imagining it. So I think the, the companies that we represent today, I think we pick them out are, will they, uh, will they execute? Yeah. Uh, or are they too tentative? And if they're too yeah. tentative, let's not take it on as a client because yeah. nothing will happen. Yeah, candidly, if they don't execute, then the value we bring is zero. Really, the only value we bring is when they execute on, on what we're working on together. So so I agree with you. So, so, so went through that career arc, um, if – if I asked people that work with you, I could start with me, but I, I won't. But if I asked other people to work with you, what ways would you think that you're challenging or tricky to work with? Um, I think that my impatience sometimes shows. And... Uh, Again, if, even if you're impatient, if you can't get the client to do what he knows to be done, then you can have all the right answers and the impatience doesn't work. So I think that's probably number one. Um, there's an expression, I think, from Alfred P. Sloan, which is, if you lead too fast, you leave the group behind. If you lead too slow, you never get to where you need to be, to which he says, and that's the problem with leadership. So I, I think part of the skill is um, trying to understand how to work with people who aren't as impatient as you are uh, or who don't see the solution as clearly as you do. That's a real skill. I'm not certain I've ever learned it, but I recognize it's, uh, it's real. And you, you know that. You're better than most of them. Well, I, I, I do know what you mean, and I'd like you to say more about it, part of it specifically, because I think that, you know, you and I, for years, uh, maybe it's a combination of our individual ability to see the horizon and to look ahead. And probably it also comes from being objective in looking in certain industries. And also, I think that there was, there's a, there's a, chemical interaction between you and me, which allowed us to frequently be accurate about some of the things that we're thinking through. But often I would say we were early. And actually, that wasn't always a benefit. Sometimes we were too early. You know, if you, how, how early do you have to be before you're actually wrong? 
Can you say a, a couple words about that? Uh, as they say in real estate, success is in location and business uh, success is in timing. Uh, I certainly remember getting very excited on taking the, on the assignment for uh, Fry Associates, the artificial intelligence group. And no one had ever heard of this idea before. But in our enthusiasm, the company wanted to get some liquidity and wanted to get sold. We took on the assignment. But we were way ahead of the marketplace on that one there. So we decided in frustration, since no one was interested, that we would propose that we do an IPO. <laughs> this may be one of the funniest experiences of our life. We were one night at dinner telling the client that there were no buyers or no investors in his business. But uh, I said, I think what we'll do is an IPO. And you, I remember you kicking me under the table and grimacing, saying, saying, what are you talking about? Well, our ability to look out, what's the which the client couldn't do. We knew that there was a sea change in the technology and IPOs for almost non-existent companies were just starting to move out on the West Coast. Yeah. We said, hmm, maybe there's a window here that the client can't see because he's constantly yeah. on his business. And net on net, you actually put together a successful IPO. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's a great example of being early. So we were early. Eric Fry was early. Uh, you know, I don't know if the world had ever seen an IPO that actually had artificial intelligence in the title before that. And I don't remember, but I'm going to guess that was in the uh, 85 to 90 time frame. Um, and I don't remember how much money we raised. Do you? Uh, it was probably Pete, 80 83 or 84, it was early, it was early, relatively early. I think it was 16 million, the number. Yeah, yeah, that same number was in my mind, must be right. So it was like 16. About, 16, about 16 million. And I don't recall how much of the company, what the total enterprise value was, but I think we'd set a value on something like 40 or $50 million. It was less than 50%, uh, but it sold out. It was oversubscribed. Probably couldn't have happened six months earlier, and we might have been laughed out of the park six months later. So um, your innate curiosity it led you really to be willing to pursue some of these opportunities like that one and like many others. Um, have you thought about like sometimes during your career, if you weren't doing what you were doing, what would be like a new skill or something that you would think would be fun to try? Well, I thought about that a lot, as I think mo probably most people who are in the advisory part of business says, you know, do I always want to be in the advisory business or do I want to be in the arena getting dirty? Uh, you know, I did that stint um, with a private company for a while and it's really sort of interesting but it isn't as much fun as it seems to be because there's a repetitive nature to it. I mean, one of the fun things we have as advisors is we meet so many interesting people in so many interesting histories. Uh, and that's the most fun I can possibly imagine. 
I, I just can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, it's not the role that you perform. It's the role that you perform for the people that you perform it for. Right. And I think in a lot of ways we learn most from our clients. I remember when we did the, the Hollis transaction and that was the biggest transaction we ever, we ever did. And then 13 months after the transaction was complete, the new owner said, now it's time to sell. I see. He said, why? It's past the 12 month short term capital gain. And I sense there's some bad things happening in the industry. So let's sell it. So I think in that regard, we, we can learn a lot from our clients uh, if we ask them the right questions and if our antennas are up all the time, and if their relationship is good. So in some ways, you know, Bigelow in those days was a micro firm and today it's a tiny, scrappy uh, M&A boutique of uh, people and our, our reputation, our image is much larger than our firm is. But in some ways, part of our, our alchemical makeup are, is, is our alchemy is we are working foremen. So everyone in the firm works in the business and on the business. And so right now you and I are talking about uh, working uh, on the business, but really, as you just pointed out, when you and I leave here, we'll probably go do some things and working in the business where you have to be willing to go to school every day because you're looking at different industries all the time. Do you have, do you feel that that's a, a challenging trade-off? Do you sometimes wish that you could have been set free to just to work on one or the other of those two tasks? Uh, the, the short answer is no, because I think to be a good advisor, you have to have at least your head in both sides of the business. You know, what's happening externally and then what's happening internally in the business. And I don't think you can be a good advisor unless you understand both, because if there's going to be an exit someday, you've got to understand what the landscape is for someday. Otherwise you won't be able to advise the client on what to do today unless you understand tomorrow. And uh, I don't think you can be in, in, in one. I think you've got to be in both to be a good, effective advisor. Is that, is that clear? Is that understandable? Yeah, I, I think that um, I might use slightly different vocabulary, but I think I'm saying the same thing is sometimes I feel like our teams are most effective if they understand how hard it is to be the entrepreneur, owner, manager. And if they are in the business development area, they understand the story, the working through the ambivalence, the family concerns, the personal concerns, the banking concerns, and the business concerns. And that makes them better at being on the execution side of a team. Similarly, I think if they're on the execution side of a team, it makes them better at being able to relate some of that combat to a prospective client. I have a, a high degree of professional skepticism about uh, you know, a, a business development person who doesn't have both of those. Uh, I can think of lots of examples, but I guess I'll use the word, at least in an exit scenario, of positioning. I'm not certain where that word ever came from, but it's one that I use all the time because most businesses are running the business day to day dealing in the issues that they deal with from uh, COVID-19 issues to making sure the trucks run on time. And 
I can think of a half a dozen situations where the exit value add was understanding the positioning. This is the kind of company you are, even if you don't think you are that kind of company. So uh, I was dealing with, uh, talking with a fellow the other day who's in the, the flooring business in Georgia, may become a client someday, and he thinks he's in the flooring business. <laughs> of course he does. That's what he lives and breathes and has for 25 years. He's in the wood flooring business. And I sort of challenged him saying, yeah, is that really what people are interested in? So we had to think about that for a while since he's one of the largest providers of flooring to Home Depot and Lowe's, and he's got exclusive plants in China. So the, the word positioning kind of caught him off guard as if to say, hmm, what business am I in? And he came away saying, I think I'm not in the flooring business. I'm not certain what it is, but I don't think I'm in the flooring business. So I don't think you come to that realization that there needs to be positioning unless you can look at, at the someday environment and look at today and help the entrepreneur make the business for tomorrow, not for today. So like that guy you just mentioned, <clears throat> you and I have had the fun of working, of, of meeting thousands of seasoned successful entrepreneurs and working closely with hundreds. Um, it's sort of axiomatic that people work best in the uh, presence of inspirational leadership. If you were to think back and just, you know, top of mind, not the most inspirational leader, but top of mind, can you think of some of the clients that we've worked with that you felt were particularly inspirational? And can you describe the situation? Oh, well, this is a, this is a curious one. Uh, company was called Promise Labs which was based out of the University of Vermont Medical Center. You, you will remember it by name. Malcolm Lowe. Yeah, it was a relatively uh, modest transaction. Um, but the National Institute of Health had invested $26 million in grants into Promise Laboratories, and they advised them that the, uh, the, the gig was up. They weren't getting any more money. So we got hired to find a buyer. And you'd say, well, was there a real business there? Well, actually there was no revenue. It was a software development company that had been funded entirely by the National Institute of Health. So uh, this was maybe an example of positioning. So we rattled around and talked to some people that were in loosely in the medical services business because their mainframe idea was medical records transparency. Um, so we knocked on a lot of doors and somehow we thought about the fact that actually this was a information database that may or may not have anything to do with healthcare, but it was a very robust database. So to cut to the chase, we, we, we sold it to Merrill Lynch as a financial database where they could take a bunch of information from all the financial services, slice it and dice it and sort it and make it available to their individual brokers in the same way that doctors were supposed to take this medical information, slice it and dice it and move it out to their uh, environments. So we sold that, it was successful, but it was an example of positioning. This really wasn't a, a medical database. It was a database that used a bunch of services 
to aggregate information and to slice it and dice it as appropriately. Uh, that was that was a fun one to sort of relive what the business was and what the business wasn't. Um, During the past 40 years, you, you've had a lot of roles, uh, you know, business development, uh, business execution, a leader, mentor, father, husband, uh, many other roles that you could, you could describe. Do you think there's an unavoidable choice to be made between being a good parent and a successful professional? <laughs> I think one supports the other, to tell you the truth. If it weren't for the support of our, uh, our, our, our families to do what we do 24-7, crazy as it is, I'm not certain you can be very successful at it. This isn't, this isn't where you punch out at 5 o'clock and it's clear until the next morning at 9 o'clock when you're back on duty. This is a, to be successful, I honestly believe you've got to be at least in the mind um, all the time, all the time. Yeah, you hear um, people talk about, and you see articles written on work-life balance, and you probably know what I'm going to say. I've often said work-life balance, balance, really the way that it works in the entrepreneurial world is have work-life integration. That's why the owner of a business was calling me at 6.15 this morning. This is a true story. Of course, he knew he wasn't interrupting me. I was up working out at 6.15 in the morning, but he was thinking about a, a critical decision for him and his business, and he wanted like five-minute reaction to it. So yeah, it's it's the integration, isn't it? And I guess the question would be, do our spouses or our children or our family members, maybe do they know they're signing up for that when they get involved with an entrepreneur? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think maybe they they think they do, but they're never quite sure till it happens. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, this was many, many moons ago. We got, we got fired, or at least we got put on hold by a client who was upset by something. And I said to Tina, oh, this is really too bad. I, I think we're going to lose this account. She said, oh, all right, all right. What do you know about him? I said, da, 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 da. And tomorrow's his birthday. She said, I'll make him a birthday cake. <laughs> we got reinstated the next day. So I, I don't know if anybody ever knows what they get signed up for, but it behooves us to try to make the balance work. And frankly, I think it does. It's a way of life. It, it, is a, it is a way of life. And it often says, well, don't bring your work home with you. I don't know whoever came up with that expression. <laughs> I think it's the guy that works at the post office. So That's yeah, crazy. Don't bring your work home with you. God, I tell you, I, I couldn't do it. So, um, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about goals and uh, behaviors to achieve goals. Of course, entrepreneurs are all about that, about achievement and a lot about habits. So I've known you a long time and I have a point of view on this. But from your point of view, what would you say are your best habits? I get things done. <laughs> period whatever it takes it gets it gets done a high bias towards action i think secondly um a genuine appreciation for the entrepreneur uh, we we I, i'll use i because I, I also could use we i love my clients i honestly do i think about them i love their kids and i think it shows Yep. That's why you get invited to bar mitzvahs. That's why you get invited to 
funerals. That's why you get invited to family gatherings. This isn't, it, it's a, it's a very unique relationship that transcends the role of most advisors. Now, most firms have got advisors. They've got CPAs, they've got insurance agents, they've got lawyers, but our role is really very different. Uh, they've entrusted us in many, many ways with the future of their business and we get involved and it shows. They can read it. They've spent a lifetime sorting out the, the phonies <laughs> from the real people. Yeah, I, I think that we're very intentional about that. Uh, I have personally accepted that as a business strategy, as a component of our business strategy, that is inheriting, inherently limiting. It means you don't become Walmart uh, because you can't scale that, but rather you become something that's a very much, of a, like I said, a scrappy boutique where you have entrepreneur owner managers who want, who passionately want that kind of close relationship. I also accept that the vast majority of people in the world don't want that. Uh, it's only a small minority who do. And therein lies the art, right? It's finding the ones that, with whom you have a great magnet together with. Do you, um, so we talked about your behaviors. You said you get things done. I, I would add to that, uh, you know, you are uh, a person who uh, consistently sees the positive. I don't mean Pollyanna. I don't mean just like saying it's positive, it's positive, it's positive. But I can see if you're looking out at your garden, uh, other people, you know, might be saying, it's full of weeds, this will never work, the ground is terrible. And you might be looking at it and saying, you know what, we can make something great about that. I think that's a that's a huge advantage and you've helped me tremendously of helping, how do you build on strengths as opposed to correcting weaknesses? You uh, you have a bias for action, you move fast, you're a great listener. Um, do, you, do you have any kryptonite? Do you have uh, what you consider to be an ultimate weakness in terms of an activity or a place or uh, a personality? Uh, is there something that you just cannot work with? Occasionally I can overstep the role of the advisor. And, um, you know, they say is it's dangerous to upstage the boss. So in, in some cases, uh, I've made some, some mistakes of upstaging the boss, so to speak, is understanding that we are subservient to the client. And even if we know more than the client does, which is generally the case about a particular situation, we have to be very careful of not getting ahead of our skis. And there's a, a danger in doing that. And I certainly have violated that more times than I would like. But uh, don't upstage the boss. They're the boss. So I understand what you're saying about that. Uh, and that sometimes goes to timing too, or time sometimes goes to being early because you may, you particularly see things that are very far ahead and you're frequently mostly right about them. But it's, so it's a question of, of execution, right? How quickly do you move? What's the velocity of change that the, the person that you're working with can handle? And that's, that's a real art, isn't it? To be able to, to modify your advice giving to the speed with which they can receive it. Yeah, I, I guess by um, sort of by the 90-20 or the 80-20 rule is ask enough questions uh, in the right sort of way that gets the client to think whatever idea he's come up with is his own. Yeah. That's a, that's a very difficult thing to do because most of us are somewhat 
impatient and a little ADD and a little hyperactive, particularly when you know the answer, it takes a real skill to be able to weave the questioning such as such as the client comes up with the right answer or something close to it. And then you can move forward to the next round. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, well, I think you're being too hard on yourself. I think it's really your genius that uh, caused Bigelow to become the kind of firm that um, appreciated and respected of just how hard it is to be the entrepreneur owner manager and to know that entrepreneur owner managers love change. They just dislike being changed. (laughs) Right. And so we, we were very respectful that change only comes about by the person who seeks to bring about change in themselves. And if they decide that we can help them. But to go too fast for that or to when they're in when they're trying to make up their mind, if they're in a period of, of ambiguity or uh, that actually by pushing too hard, we cause resistance and we actually hurt them. I think you're really the guy that that's on a course where that's become part of our absolute Bigelow culture and strategy. I saw Rob McLeod operating well the other day on that very premise, because this is kind of the. Uh, the external versus internal knowledge. We knew that a particular industry had a kind of an accepted level of profitability. It was sort of the industry's profitability was generally above 20% EBITDA. And yet the company we were at was at 12. And he thought he was doing really well. (laughs) He didn't know what the industry did. Yeah. So, uh, in this case here, Rob was very effective in weaving in a scenario to get him to think that maybe uh, a profit could be improved and to test it. So, you know, two months later, the if this was a prospective client, called and said, I've got a request for a quote from one of my major customers. And without, before you guys visited, I would have priced it at this. Now I want to think I want to price it at that plus 20%. What do you think? I said, do they have any other choice of a supplier to go to? The answer was no. Well, then go ahead. And uh, and they did. And, of course, they got the business. But I think that's a, maybe a kind of a rudimentary example of when you know something a little bit about the industry, you can be really helpful in persuading the prospect or the client to make some adjustments in the things that they do to improve their profitability that someday will improve the value of the business. But you just can't blast it out. You can't say, your profitability sucks. You know, you're doing 12%, the industry does 20. That's gonna drive the guy into his hole. I think that uh, while our clients are across a wide variety of industries, and at some level, uh, they are so different from each other, it's very difficult to compare. The one thing I would say after 40 years of working with them is that entrepreneur owner managers frequently are their own biggest critics. And as a consequence, the one piece of advice that almost all of them could implement would be raise your prices. Uh 
that is probably ought to be blazoned in neon somewhere because they all price all. Yes, they all price their product too low. Probably because they don't understand it, and they're um, it's easy to do. It's it's easy to do, and they all do it. So would there be a lot of the public market information? Uh, there was a landscaping company in which you know that we had that had been pricing the products based upon cost. And one day I was visiting with them, and I brought with me the Home Depot annual report. And I said, what do you suppose the Home Depot's operating margin is? They said, oh, it was probably a lot like ours. You know, we're in that supply business. It's probably around 30%. said, well, you're probably wrong. How about 48%? Oh, that's impossible. So sometimes... Uh, just slipping someone an annual report of a public company where the information is right in front of you gets their attention. They say, gee whiz, maybe I can do better. And we know in almost every case that will happen. That will happen. What was the issue on pricing with the, uh, the filter company, Peter? And we had the market research done. And the research company said, gee, this is really unusual. We've never seen a company where the customers love the company so much. And a puzzle why their prices are so low. Yeah, yeah, very much so. They're highest on service, highest on quality, and they were also the lowest price. The owner manager left our meeting, went right up, and raised prices ten percent. And it and it and it held. Yeah, it stuck. Oh yeah, it definitely stuck. Yeah. A pricing cycle. So sometimes it takes an external force, uh, a valid external force, as opposed to just saying, "Well, I know it all. I know about this," in order to put some validation. Because, you know, these successful entrepreneurs, Pete, they don't go to the trade shows anymore. They send their vice president of sales. They come back with filtered information. Hey, boss, we're still number one or number two when they really have slipped to number three or number four. So the, the boss isn't always getting the information unfiltered from their, their CFO or from their head of sales. So uh, and the information gap is wider than they think. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, um, it is amazing to us how when we work with entrepreneur owner managers frequently, not every case, but we frequently get a third party market study to look at the market uh, worldwide and to look at the segments within the market that are most attractive, maybe that are growing the fastest, maybe that are projected to grow the fastest, maybe that have the highest possibility for bringing value to. And it's the first time really the entrepreneur owner manager has thought about that. And frequently, it's after that point where they really get a sense that, wow, um, I have a position in this market, and it's really a valid position, and this gives me some direction to go on. I think you're right. I think in, in prior times, trade shows or trade associations frequently were closer, and people actually knew their, if not their competitors, then other people in the country who they or in a similar business hour, they frequently not only knew them, they knew their spouses, they got together a few times a year. It's one of the reasons that I am such a huge fan of CEO peer-to-peer -peer groups, whether it's Vistage or YPO or whatever, because they do get a chance to come together and talk about these things. Even if it's not in the same industry, it's helpful to hear the other owner-manager's point of view, isn't it? Yeah, your interview with Howard Brodsky, you know, talking about uh, when you combine together and you create an, it doesn't have to necessarily be a co-op. It, it can be any, any trade association to try to make the timid people 
do decisions that they wouldn't do otherwise. So there's kind of a benefit of a group mentality. Yes. Whether it's on pricing, we don't want to call it collusion. We don't want to call it price fixing. We just want to call it is uh, intelligent thinking about the marketplace. And in most cases, if you're a really, really, really good supplier, um, the customer will pay more. And we do know this from our own personal world is that what separates an average profitability company from a superior profit company when they all have identical costs. And it's usually the customer is willing to pay just a little bit more than their competitors because they value the relationship. And that makes the superior company separate from the average company. And it's not that they've got a cost advantage. They're not paying their employees less than their competitors. It's just that they, the customer assigns a value. That's why uh, Tiffany exists. It's a brand. That's why Brooks Brothers exists. People are willing to pay just a little bit more because they value the, the product. They value the service above the product. Rich, I think the other thing that you have as a uh, tremendous distinctive competence and skill was uh, is your willingness to try things that may not work and that fail. And you know, long before Silicon Valley began to talk about, you know, failure is good or fail fast, you were out there and we were just chatting about it in 1980. We we're trying something which became Mergers and Acquisitions Inc., which became what the now Bigelow is. It wasn't obvious that it was going to succeed. And actually some experiments along the way failed. Um, do you have a, a, a professional reversal or failure or two in your career that you would share that you learned from? Yeah, I think, Peter, we stayed generalist for probably too long because uh, business was good. And Bigelow clients have been good to the Kimball family. And uh, we should have recognized the, um, the need to specialize because it took a number of years for us to shake ourselves off and say, well, we know what we're doing from a technical point of view. But we hadn't focused in on the uh, the entrepreneur owner manager as succinctly as we did now, and you, you deserve the credit for that, because it was it was too easy to be sort of generalist, and it was sort of fun, and being focused is really really tough because we moved from a kind of a supermarket mentality where you can get one of everything to really a boutique where there's only one thing available, and mentally that's hard to do. Yeah. It, out so many options. Yeah. And, and as human nature, we don't like our options closed out. You know, the paradox choice phenomenon. And that's really, really hard to do. And the team, and you particularly, deserve a lot of credit saying, I know closing out options is tough because everyday opportunities arrive on the doorstep where we can add value. Yeah. Knowing when to say no and when to say yes is probably the hardest thing any advisor faces today, the hardest thing to do. So, uh, and to maintain it because there are so many options. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that, um, that I understand that answer and I appreciate the, the insight in your answer. Uh, it is what good is your strategy if you don't say no. And, uh, for us, 
you know, focusing on entrepreneur, owner, manager only, and focusing on uh, building and capturing enterprise value only is been the, a fabulous success story, but it is hard. We get more than 120 referrals of business per year from uh, business expert advisors who we care very much about, and we're very grateful that they think of us. But, uh, you know, we only take on 10 new pieces of business a year. So for more than 100 of those, we have to say no. Now, we don't say no. We, we say, first of all, thank you. And then we say we'll find a, a home for this situation because we're really trying to solve a problem for the advisor. But you're, you're right. It, it, it actually make, it causes our team to scratch their heads from time to time saying we had a call, for example, uh, the week before last from a uh, publicly owned software company in Burlington, Mass., whom I'm sure you, everyone would know the name of. And the woman who was the CEO called and said, look, my lawyer told me to call Bigelow. My accountant told me to call Bigelow. My director told me to call Bigelow. I'm calling you. We want to sell a you know significant division. You can help us. And I said, thank you. But we don't work with uh, public companies. And so she said, why not? And I said, because you make decisions differently than entrepreneur owner managers. And we've, we've resourced our whole firm to be make to help entrepreneur owner managers make the best decisions. So you're right. It's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Look, I have a, uh, you've had a long history with Babson where I have a graduate degree and you have a degree. Um, you've been on the board there. You've been on advisory boards there. You've been a, a very generous donor and good friend to them. What advice? Here we are. It's uh, June 10th, 2020. This uh, virus seems to be coming to an end, but they'll have it'll have implications for a long time. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student, call it a Babson college student, if you want today, who wants to become an entrepreneur owner manager? Well, as you may know, I'm in the mentoring program there. Uh, and not unlike when I was at Babson, 95% of my classmates were the sons of business owners. That was, you know, that was Roger Babson's philosophy. I want business owners here. And um, they're sort of back into that track now where the majority of the student body are sons and now, of course, daughters of business owners or those who wish to become entrepreneurs. And it's a very interesting dynamic. What I, what I say to them is different from your folks, the kids today want to develop a business and exit quickly. They want to, we'll say, get rich quick. Um, prior business owners wanted to keep the family business going generation for generation. So I think the student has to be able to say to themselves, am I really interested in being part of my family business? Do I want to join a family business? Or do I want to invent something quickly, IPO it out, or sell it? And that's a great question. No one ever has the answer for that. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm gonna, and I want to ask you the, the obverse question. What, what are some of the worst recommendations you've heard given to young entrepreneurs today? Um, <laughs> build a business to sell it. Um, don't miss the cycle. This is not going to go on forever. And the worst advice is 
Do it once and you can do it again. So we all know, Pete, the second time is really, really hard. But these kids don't know that. They think they're going to become serial entrepreneurs. At the end of the day, 99% of them won't make it. They'll do it once and they'll get lucky and they think they can do it again. So I, I go against what the faculty may be telling them or what instincts or their the, the boys at the bar are telling them, guys, pretend that you're going to do it once, optimize the value, and give it all away to charity because the chance for doing it a second time, very, very low. Boy, that's a super important piece of wisdom there built over 50 years, which I emphatically agree with. And just to put some description around that to some of our entrepreneur owner manager friends who are listening, I think it was Danny Kahneman, my hero, who said, show me a successful entrepreneur and I'll show you talent and hard work visited by luck. If you show me a super, super successful entrepreneur, I will show you talent and hard work visited upon by a super, super amount of luck. And so sometimes I think we don't really give luck or chance all of the regard or weight that we probably should when we look at the success or failure of businesses. You know, I, um, we look, I mean, a lot of pretty interesting examples. Jamie Siminoff, the ring guy, uh, Babson guy, who sold his business to Amazon for $2 billion. Uh, I was chatting with him the other day. Uh, no, she's not going to do it again. You know, this is certainly is. Talk about the confluence of things coming together at the same time. It's a doorbell. It's an intelligent doorbell. Four years ago, it wouldn't have happened. And if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell, he'll tell you that the success happens because it's the intersection of opportunity and entrepreneurship. And one without the other, nothing happens. So I hope people take the advice that don't sell out too early run the business, make it worthwhile, pass it on for a generation if you need to, but don't build it to sell it necessarily. Uh, In fact, I would, I would see you and I'll raise you. I'd say run the business as if you're going to own it forever. Yep. And if by chance circumstances mean that you shouldn't, well, at least now you've got two choices. Right. Right. So, uh, again, it's it's uh, June 10th. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yesterday was my 36th wedding anniversary. It's June 10th, 2020. Um, let's pretend we go to sleep tonight and we wake up tomorrow, Richard, and magically it's June 10th in 2030, 10 years from now. What are you going to be working on? I love working with young entrepreneurs, and I suspect that's what I'll continue to be doing. Uh, I make choices in the same way we make client selection. <laughs> my, my latest trick is this. All new mentees that I take on have to do the uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, personality character test. And um, this is sort of my... Authenticity, leadership, gratitude. Yeah, yeah, you know the one. You know the one. They have to take it. And then it's not taking the test that's the test. I want to see how they react to the test. The ones that I gravitate to go to the test and say, 
boy, it is dead on. I recognize me there in a heartbeat. And I'll say, okay, you know, you're going to be with me. We're going we're gonna to work this out really nicely. The ones I decide to take a pass on are the ones who disagree vehemently with every. That's not it. It's not completely right. So then I work with them for maybe for three or four or five, six months, and I have them retake the test to see if it's changed. And it's really quite remarkable. Again, right. I'm not so much concerned about the test. I'm concerned mostly with their reaction to the test. And it is it is wonderful. Thank you for introducing us to that test because it provides a lot of ammunition before you even get started. And the only thing we have of any value, particularly as we get older, Pete, we only have time. So let's use it wisely. Whether you're using it with a 50-year-old entrepreneur or with a 23-year-old hope-for entrepreneur. So I, I see doing that for many years to come. And so, I honestly say I've helped some kids, um, one of which you know who came to the forum last year, who's built that business in three years from nothing to uh, $20 million and profitable with no debt. And he would say to you, as he said to me, there uh, were only two people in my life that ever given me advice that I've taken. That's you and my dad. That's good. He said, but mostly it was you. So who knows? Uh, I don't think I provided much advice, but I provide an environment for him to make informed decisions. And that's a big one. You can't give advice, but you can provide an environment where advice happens. There's a difference. And today, answers are easy. They're everywhere. You can Google answers to anything at any time on any question. It's the questions which really cause the reflection that cause personal growth. So they're lucky to, to have you and to have you know that that's the case. So you're, you're, as you think about this, another chapter in your professional life, what is some things in addition to working with these young entrepreneurs that you want to have more of in your life for the next 10 years? Uh, I'd like to go on to more small boards, advisory boards, because um, I can be really effective there. Uh, or unless I can determine if I can be effective. Uh, oh, God, they'd be lucky. lucky I, love, I love the work. Um, I've got the background training and experience, and most of them don't have anything. I mean, something's as simple as I strongly believe you cannot build a great company without a great board. It doesn't need to be a formal board. It can be an advisory board. Um, but we live in a time trap where – Things happen so quickly, you can't afford as an entrepreneur to, to be too deliberate. Other than things will happen to you. To use a phrase, I think it must have come from you is what's the greatest thing we can do? Time compression, time compression. We used to say, why time compression? We used to say, because 9 11 happens. Now we say, because SARS or Codeine 11 or 19 happens. Sure, sure. sure. So uh, to get people to think that they don't have all day. So uh, boards, I want to do a little bit more writing. I've started writing up the most interesting uh, transactions that I've been involved with. I think I'm up to seven stories that are really fun. 
And the benefit of writing stories is that you can uh, add a little bit of flavor that might have not been there at the actual time. You can put it, you can put it into a different context. So uh, a little bit of writing, writing up stories. Uh, George Weathersby, when he died, um, left me an unfinished manuscript that he wanted oh. me to finish. Oh, my goodness. What a gift. Which I haven't done yet. Wow. Uh, it's about execution. Oh. Uh, business business execution. And it's, it's pretty doggone good. Um, and uh, I'm going to try to spend some time working on uh, completing that. Uh, on his behalf and in his memory. And um, so execution, big one. Entrepreneur. Okay, here, here's another question. Uh, maybe this is a question on something that you're not, maybe not as skillful at. What do you want to proactively discard in the next 10 years? <laughs> what do you want to know of? What do I want to proactively discard? Yeah. You want to think about that one and get back to me? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. And, and as as time marches on, I think we realize the value of time, and we do need to discard some stuff. Uh, again, coming back to George Weathersby, he said life is like a it's like an investment portfolio. You know, you've got stocks, bonds, cash, liquidity, and you can set the portfolio, but it will quickly go astray. And you've got to do an analysis every year to find out, are you spending your time in the right things? And adjust your, your balance of life in the same way you adjust your portfolio. So uh, I think I probably waste too much time doing things that don't matter. Well, you have a, you have a super high level of positive energy and you have a much greater capacity than the average person. In fact, you have a much greater capacity than almost anyone, or I won't say anyone that I know in terms of your output. So if anyone could take on more things, it's you. I just know that uh, you and I have had this dialogue over the past 40 years, because for me, the way that I've been able to focus on the things that were my, my unique output was only by proactively uh, discarding things. So I always like to ask that question. Yeah, it's a tough, tough question. I would say that uh, going forward, as uh, as my role transitions, uh, I still intend to maintain relationships with folks within the financial community and hopefully provide a referral or two to the firm. And I don't think that is going to change. It may be, uh, you know, one a year or one in 10 years, I don't know. But um, there are a long line of relationships that have been established and it would seem silly to throw them away. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're counting on you. Yeah. And, and they're, they're real. And I think in, in some way we've been able to provide uh, some interesting companies that otherwise would not have come to us just because, you know, we're there and we're in the marketplace and it is a, it is a business of personalities and it is a business. We can we can provide marketing. We provide brochures. We can do all the things that we want. But there is an element of uh, business getting that is personal. So um, that's going to be part of the equation going forward. Pick up every phone message and return every phone call before 5 p.m. Yeah. <laughs>
You know, that's an art. I just will just spend one second on that. That is an art that might be overlooked today. So many people, of course, uh, screen their their calls. And um, recently, I was dealing with a service provider for myself, an insurance firm, and uh, finally, I got a hold of them and I said to the relationship manager, "Why didn't you return my call?" She said, "Well, I saw you had an area code that I didn't recognize, so I just I didn't pick it up." And I thought, you know, one of the great things about Bigelow that you inculcated into all of us very early is just like, you know, you never, since you're in a professional service business, you never know who will be calling and, and what the, how remote the, the linkage could be. But it frequently ends up in being a situation that you could bring great value to that's good for the person you're trying to bring value to and good for Bigelow. So it just happens over and over and over continuously, even now. I'm so surprised by it. Well, ultimately, we're in the branding business. We, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to create value around the brand. And I guess that really dictates that you do everything you possibly can whenever you can to enhance the brand and reputation, brand reputation. And when they call, pick up the phone and say thank you. Yeah. So anyone who knows you, and we'll have some pictures uh, with this podcast, but anyone who knows you knows that what I'm about to say is true, that you know when we began working together 40 years ago until where you are now, you are one of the people in the world that looks most amazingly similar over those past 40 years. You haven't changed. And you are in incredible shape physically and mentally. You are incredible output. Um, my experience has been that 90% of the challenges facing entrepreneurs as they get to be high performing are uh, psychological ones, especially for people who you know have sustained that output for a long time like you have. And the thing that all of this goes to is to make sure that you have like a really extraordinary amount of self-care, whether it's sleep, nutrition, exercise. When you start playing that deeper game is when you really need to be able to get replenished. This means increasingly that you do things that are focused very intentionally on self-care. Maybe for some people that means um, working out. Maybe for some people that means yoga, meditation, riding your bike. What have you been doing in your workout routine that is particularly interesting or energizing to you recently? Well, I love to ride bikes. So I do a lot of bike riding. And Why do you love to ride bikes? Yeah, I can ride bikes. What, what is it about riding a bike that you love? I like the, I like the exercise. Uh, the bike talks to you. If you haven't been good for the last few days and you try to pedal up a hill, your legs will talk to you. They will <laughs> I don't need a personal trainer to tell me I need to work harder on my my thighs. Uh, my bike will tell me. So um, that's kind of a, a feedback mechanism that I really, really like. Uh, I like to walk. I don't run anymore because of meniscus. My last meniscus tear was on December 19th, 2018. I don't do that anymore, but I do walk a lot. Um, I don't I work hard, but I keep a pretty good diet. Um, and that's a big one. I don't drink much. Uh, I get good sleep. Yeah, sort of basic, basic stuff. Um, good workout. Yeah. yeah. So in this group of listeners, we have both entrepreneur owner managers and uh, advisors. I would say both for-profit and not-for-profit. 
in this group who's listening, high performance, superior achievement is common. Not all of them would describe themselves as highly content or fulfilled people. Are you content? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very content. I'm very content. What makes you content? Uh, I can look back at a period of time and saying I made a difference for, for some people. As uh, several of our clients have said to all of us individually or, or collectively, um, you've allowed me to do the things that I couldn't do myself, whether it was create a charitable foundation or rebuild a lighthouse. So uh, the liquidity that we're able to extract changes lives. Now, I was at a closing party uh, of a company I'm a director of the other day, and uh, the early stage employees, of which they were 18, were saying to the CEO uh, entrepreneur, because of you, I put, able now put my kids to college, I paid off my mortgage, um, I mean, just heartfelt expression of what uh, a cash out can do for the people who made it happen. So I think we look back and say, did we make a difference? I think so. I think so. And that the contentment comes not from ourselves. The contentment comes from those that we were able to achieve whatever they viewed as being their outcome in their, uh, in their business. That's a great, that's a great answer. Thank you. Okay, last question, if you'd like it to be, but the last question that I have, what's the one misconception that people have about you, even people who may know you well? What's the one misconception they have about you that you may feel is a misunderstanding? Uh, I think they think I'm sort of unapproachable because they think I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> Or um, I don't appear to be as warm and fuzzy. Uh, is he a guy that you want to ask a question of? Or is he going to bend your ear for the next 45 minutes giving you the answer? So I think there's a level of unapproachability that um, I demonstrate. I try not to. And I'm inclined to probably um, talk too much. Well, I think you're your own biggest critic. Because <laughs> in addition to being one of my closest friends in the world, you are the most important mentor to me that I uh, have ever had or that I will ever have. So that's very clear to me. And so I want to thank you for the positive impact you've had on me all these 40 years so far. And I'm counting on revisiting this in 10 years and having this again. But I, um, I also want to thank you because if I've had a positive impact on some of our friends and clients, part of it is due to you. So you should feel like you're reaching through the rest of us and having this kind of impact that maybe is a multiplier effect. If people want to comment to you on this podcast, can they go to your uh, email email or call you on their cell phone, on your cell phone? It's on the, it's on the list. Sure. That so if people great. want to be in touch with Dick, you could go to uh, our website, which is BigelowLLC.com and point on team. And you'll see his email address is rkimble at bigelowllc.com. And if you don't mind, Dick, I'm going to give your cell phone number, which is 603-496-1946. You can expect to get a call before call back before 5 p.m. 
Yeah, I will stand there uh, at the ready. I'll be at the ready. Pete, this has been fun. Thanks very much. Good questions and interesting 40-year horizon. Uh, I get a great deal of pleasure uh, observing the team uh, today and in some ways watching some of the new people that have come on board transition their life from what it was before to life at the Bigelow Company. And I think of all the new people that have come on, they all came from a different place, a different culture, a different lifestyle. And it is amazing to watch the assimilation that's occurred to the Bigelow culture. That's a, a tribute, I guess, to our hiring practices. So uh, it's got to be more than right. good. <laughs> uh, we, our, our, our goal is to continue to be an entrepreneur managed firm into the next generation of leaders. And we're working really hard to make that happen. <laughs> well, Thanks, we for all you're doing, it's 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 amazing, and it's um it's an interesting experiment. It started out as an experiment. This is the ultimate petri dish, and and it ended up as a business. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com. <laughs>